0: A reading from the book of Luke. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Silium fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, "'Sir, let it alone this year also, "'until I dig around it and put on manure. "'Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, "'but if not, you can cut it down.'" At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, "'Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you.' And he said to them, "'Go and tell that fox, "'Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow.'" and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until I say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
1: Repent or perish. These are the words that we expect from some wild-eyed preacher standing on a soapbox or wearing a sandwich board downtown, warning passers-by of their impending damnation. But here in Luke thirteen three, they are on the lips... Of Jesus and so what is going on here what happened to the tender Jesus meek and mild always with a smile on his face and a little lamb slung over his shoulders there's the old story where someone says on their deathbed of course Jesus will forgive me that's his job But here is Jesus telling a group of people that unless they repent, they too shall perish. What our passage today is about is about the urgency of God's mercy. That the time and space that God has given us to turn away from our sin and turn to him is an act of mercy. But it's time and space that we can't take for granted. The urgency of God's mercy when it comes to changing our lives. The urgency of mercy when it comes to the question of what is it that we're going to change. And the urgency of the mercy that we see in Jesus' mission that takes him all the way to Jerusalem. To understand what Jesus is talking about in these verses, we've got to look closely at the circumstances. Who he's talking to and what he's saying. Then we can understand what these words meant then and what they mean now. It wasn't that Jesus was standing on on the highways of first century Palestine yelling at people and telling them that they're going to hell, like some street preacher or campus preacher. Jesus never does that. And the people that he always warns the most about the dangers of God's judgment and winding up on the outside looking in are those who are most likely to consider themselves insiders. It's the people who are confident in their status as God's favorite who are most at risk for missing out on the kingdom. And in the first part of our passage, Jesus is told by some of the people that are listening to him preach as he's on his way to Jerusalem about a certain group of Galileans. Who had been slaughtered by Pilate as they were offering their sacrifices in the temple, so that their own blood mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. And this news would have been an outrage. There is nothing as egregious as shedding someone's blood when they are in the act of worship, that most sacred act. We don't need to look beyond our contemporary world for examples of of this that just fill us with with despair and outrage. On December 11th, as Egyptian Christians were celebrating mass inside uh, Cairo St. Mark's Cathedral, there was a car bomb that went off, and and it ripped through the sanctuary, killing more than two dozen Worshippers, many of them women and children, so that their bodies were tangled up with the broken, splintered pews on which they had sat praying. Or in late July in Normandy, France, when, when Father Jacques Hamel had his throat slit by two militants on the altar as he was in the act of saying Mass. We hear those stories and they are outrageous. Outrageous. Because they take what is supposed to be a place of what is most sacred and most holy and they turn it into a place of fear and of violence. And so these modern parallels they only underscore Pilate's just outrageous and wanton cruelty. And though this particular event is unknown outside of Luke's gospel, we can imagine the circumstances that precipitated it, that Pilate had sent some of his soldiers to the temple to to make sure that there was no riot or nothing got out of hand during one of the great festivals like Passover. And then things had gotten out of hand, and all of a sudden, this house of worship had turned into a house of horrors. And so these people are coming, and they're telling Jesus about this, and they say, what? is your reaction. What is your response to this? How is he going to respond to this outrage? Will he call for retribution? Will he muster his followers into a band to seek vengeance? If Jesus was the Messiah, if he was the king like he seemed to be acting like, then he would need to go on record with how he was going to respond to this massacre. How he would not let this outrage stand. But Jesus' agenda is different. He isn't interested in perpetuating these vicious cycles of revenge. Nor, as is clear from what he says, his response to this, is he interested in any simplistic theological schemes that interpret the world as if we can read sort of right off of the events some sort of karmic understanding of justice. That good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, and that's just the way it is. Because we all know that the world is not that simple. That's the lesson we get from the book of Job, isn't it? That even those who, who, who are righteous, who love God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength can face unimaginable suffering. So from this incident, Jesus refuses to draw any simplistic conclusions. He refuses to say that the solution is is an act of even more violence. And he refuses to say that the lesson that we must learn is that these Galileans must have been terrible sinners for God to allow such an awful fate to befall them. But the lesson that Jesus does draw for those who are listening to him is that unless they repent, they too will perish. Perish. And this seems like an extraordinarily callous statement by Jesus on one hand. What could he possibly mean? And I think on the historical level, Jesus almost certainly is telling his contemporaries that if they feed their increasingly revolutionary furor against the Roman Empire, it will only end in a disaster that will be worse than even this tragedy. Unless the people repent, which in Greek means change your mind, and and in in Hebrew it means literally turn around and go in another direction, unless they change their minds and change their direction. Away from this violence and rebellion, Jesus could see that that his people were rushing off a cliff of national disaster, that they were rushing towards the edge of a precipice, that there was a, a collective catastrophe that was looming on the horizon. And his premonitions were, of course, proved correct when within a generation of his death, Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. Repent or perish. So Jesus' message in its historical context means that unless God's people choose another path, a great tragedy would befall them. Worse even than the fate of those who died at the hands of Pilate or on whom the tower collapsed in Jerusalem. So that's the immediate historical context. But there's also another dimension to this teaching as well. The the spiritual or the existential dimension to this teaching of repent or perish. Because what these tragedies speak to is the fragility of life. How much our own lives are out of our control. Which runs contrary to the very modern conceit that we can pretty much... Manage any risk that might befall us. Because no matter how much money we have, or how healthy we are, or how insulated we are from the dangers of this world, we will all face a situation in which we are reminded of the utter fragility of the human condition and our utter dependence upon the grace of God. You can think you're in control, and then you get hit by a car. You can think you're in control, and then a dog runs in front of your bike, and you go flying over the handlebars, as has happened to someone that I know. You can think you're in control, and then your parent dies. You can think you're in control, and then your baby is born with unforeseen challenges. You think you're in control, and then your spouse walks in and says, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving you. You think you're in control and then your kids start making choices that you don't agree with or you can see are just leading them on a road to ruin. So Jesus is saying that we will all be faced with tragedies and crises and so the time is now, the situation is urgent that we turn to him before it's too late and everything comes crumbling down around us. The time is now to, to break out of the self-destructive cycles and patterns to which we've accommodated ourselves. There's an urgency to repentance because repentance because life is fragile. And when we're faced with these circumstances or situations, or even God's judgment, the the, the saying, I just needed more time, Lord, isn't going to hold water. Because God has already given us all the time, all the mercy. That we need. And to illustrate this point. That God has given us the time we need. The mercy we need. Jesus tells a parable. And it's a story about a fig tree growing in a vineyard. That hasn't borne fruit in years. And so the owner of the vineyard. Wants to chop the tree down. Because he's saying. What good is it. To have a tree that doesn't produce any fruit. Year after year. After year. But the vine dresser says. Just. Give it one more year. What does this parable mean? On one level, it's clearly about God being the God of second chances, that God's judgment is always tempered by God's mercy, that God's desire is that we always have more time, more opportunities to get things right. But the reality of the parable is also that there will come a time when we will have to give account. That we'll need to take stock of our lives and of the kind of fruit that we've produced. No matter how many second chances we get, there comes a time for a last chance. And the images that Jesus Jesus uses in this parable would have been familiar to his audience. They were used to these images from the Old Testament that Israel was a vineyard. And God is the owner of the vineyard. And the vine dresser would have been some sort of prophetic Figure and this, this fig tree would have been their leaders. But I think in this parable, what Jesus is letting us in on is, a, is on a conversation between two different aspects of God. God's mercy and God's justice. And they're in conversation. And they're discussing this fig tree, which is the leaders of Israel. And, and the message is basically that, that the leaders of God's people have not borne fruit for years and years and years. And God is patient, but God's justice demands that he do something new before these leaders lead the whole vineyard to ruin. Before they take up any more resources from the ground without producing anything. And so it's Jesus' warning to the leaders, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the lawyers and religious scholars that God's patience with them is running out. And unless they get their act together, a a, a renewal of God's people is either going to require renewed leaders or new leaders. And Jesus' message to them is don't waste this opportunity. Don't waste this season of mercy because the window is closing. There is mercy, yes, but there is an urgency to God's mercy. We don't have forever. And where I see this passage speaking especially powerful to the church today is the fact that what's wrong with this fig tree is not just that it's not producing fruit. But look at what the owner asks in verse 7. He says, why should it use up the ground? And so the biggest problem with the fig tree is that it takes and it takes and it takes and it never produces anything. In many ways, one could make this same indictment of the contemporary American church or American Christians. We've been so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as customers in every aspect of our lives that we bring that same mentality into church and into our relationship with Christ. As consumers and as Christians, we're always asking what am I getting out of this transaction? How am I being fed? Are there the programs that are going to meet my needs? And churches and pastors have learned that the customer is always right. And so we feed this consumer mentality by always trying to give the people what they want. And so there's this this great outpouring of resources and effort and energy to produce satisfied customers without producing any fruit. And so we gather crowds, but we don't build community. And we make members, but not disciples. And we have worship services, but we never really worship. And we take an offering, but we don't challenge folks in self-sacrifice. And we say, not only can you be in the world and follow Jesus, but you can be of the world too. Here's your cake. Eat it too. But Jesus' word to us is that this just won't cut it. Being a Christian isn't about just showing up once a week in a room with other people. Or even reading your Bible in your daily devotions. That's all good. But the question that we are challenged to ask is where is the fruit in my life that demonstrates that I am a follower of Jesus? And what is different about me because I follow him rather than if I didn't? And if the answer is nothing, then there is an urgency, an urgency for us to turn to him and say, God, I need you to get to work in me. God is merciful, but there is an urgency that comes with that mercy. And nowhere do we see that more plainly than in Jesus's words at the end of our passage, as word comes to him from some Pharisees and they warn Jesus that Herod is out to get him. That he's out to kill him. And their message to Jesus is run away from danger. But Jesus understands that his mission is too urgent to run away. In fact, Jesus isn't running away. He's running into danger. He's running toward fire. He's running into the burning building. Because God's rescue mission is so urgent. He runs right into Jerusalem, the city that he identifies as the one that stones those who are sent to her. And kills the prophets. And the picture that Jesus gives of his mission, it's tragically beautiful. Well, Herod, he calls him a fox. And foxes are cunning and crafty and deceptive and destructive. You know when you're reading a nursery rhyme or a a children's story before bed and you see a fox show up. You know that fox is going to do something bad. The fox will be dressed like a gentleman, but will trick the, the 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 goose or the chicken into doing something so that so that the fox can eat them. And Jemima Puddle Duck is uh, one of my favorite examples of that story. That fox is a is a is a wily and cunning fox who tries to trick Jemima. Herod's the same way. He's not strong. He's he's crafty and he's deceptive, and Jesus knows that about him. But Jesus says, well, well, Herod's like this fox. Here's what I'm like. I'm like a mother hen. And if there's a fire, hens will instinctively gather their chicks under their wings in order to protect them from the blaze. So a mother hen will cover her children and give her life to protect them. And Jesus says, that's what I'm going to Jerusalem to do. I'm going there to to gather this people under my wings, to let the forces of sin and of death and of evil and of darkness do their worst. But they are going to exhaust their power on me, even to the point of death. So that while they will touch him, they will never touch us. And I love this because it's an image of the atonement. What is Jesus doing on the cross that we, we don't often think about when we're thinking about atonement metaphors or images that help us make sense of what is Jesus doing on Good Friday. We think about you know, the cross as, as a courtroom where there's a sentence pronounced and the judge steps down from the bench and is judged in our place. Or, or we think of the cross as this place where, where our freedom is purchased and, and we, are, we are manumitted from our slavery. Or we think of a a debt, a record being wiped clean. But this image is just as powerful. A mother hen protecting and preserving the life of her chicks at the expense of her own life. And so God does this for us to rescue us, to deliver us, to give us a second chance. Jesus doesn't run from this. He runs toward it. Because there is an urgency to God's mercy. And so what are we going to do with the mercy that he's extended to us? Will we seize the day or will we let it fritter away? Will we answer his call now? Make the changes that we know we need to make now? Surrender all to him now? Or will we say there's always tomorrow? Always next year. But there isn't. And what the urgency of Christ's mercy tells us is that life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. The invitation to follow Jesus is a gift. So don't wait it. Don't waste it. Repent or regret squandering this one life God has given you. Repent or regret missing out on the greatest adventure of all, which is a life lived with and for Christ that bears the strangest and sweetest of fruit. Repent or regret the opportunity that you've missed to be a part of God's mission to make all things new. To poke little holes in the veil that separates earth from heaven so that the light shines through. Repent or regret that you've missed that. So Jesus is calling. He is saying the time is now. God's mercy is wide. But the moments that we have to respond to that are so precious that they cannot be wasted. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Let's pray.